0: I'm Bernie Crane.
1: I'm John Crane.
0: You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad.
1: Welcome to The Jazz Session. I'm Michael Wright, the host of Bohemia After Dark on RobinhoodRadio.com, serving as this show's guest announcer. If you'd like to be a guest announcer, send an email to jason at thejazzsession.com. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode number 370. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to the show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel for the show's logo. He's online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. All About Jazz has a widget that will display the latest episode of the show on your website. To get it, go to allaboutjazz.com and type jazz session widget in the search box. If you put the code on your site, let Jason know and he'll feature you in his weekly newsletter. You can get that newsletter by going to thejazzsession.com and clicking on mailing list at the top of the page. If you like what you hear, please join the show. You can do that for as little as $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Please review the show on iTunes. This helps the Jazz Session climb in the iTunes rankings, which makes it easier for people to find it. Jason has a poetry blog at jasoncrane.org. You can also buy his book there. The book is called Unexpected Sunlight. It's a collection of poems published in 2010 by Foothills Publishing. Today's guest is pianist and composer George Colligan. Here's some music from George, followed by his conversation with Jason.
2: My guest is George Colligan, uh, making his first appearance on the show long overdue, in my opinion. It's great to have you. Thanks for oh, being here. Thanks for asking me. <laughs> so uh, we're in the green room at the Jazz Standard, which has maybe been home to more interviews on this show than any other place except my house, I think. Really? Uh, will you talk about who you're here with tonight?
0: Okay, uh, I'm here as a leader. Uh, I've been here, you know, uh, not as much as I would have liked, but over the years I've been here as a sideman a number of times, and I've been here uh, as a leader. This will be my third time. Um, and, uh, so I'm bringing, uh, kind of a different kind of project, and I think it's a kind of an all-star lineup for, well, I'll just say, first we have Lonnie Plaxico on bass, um, who we used to work together with Cassandra Wilson and Robin Eubanks, a number of other things. On drums is Clarence Penn, and, you know, we've also worked in a bunch of different projects together, um. Jaleel Shaw is the alto saxophonist, and uh, he's kind of a special guest. And uh, he, I, I've been hiring him a lot over the years, and, and we've also worked with a, a whole bunch of different projects. Um, the Mingus Band, I think that's where we met. Uh, we also have a vocalist. Uh, her name is Debbie Dean, and she's probably m- known more uh, for some of her pop material. Um, she did a record for uh, Robbie Coltrane's label, the RKM label and uh you know but i uh she was actually a last minute substitute for a tour i did in japan um i did uh two tours with a vocalist and that wasn't really working out so well and so then i tried to just i i I decided to try somebody else and that person uh who will remain nameless uh just canceled (laughs) at the last minute it was a little mysterious but whatever so i was trying to think of somebody and um thought of debbie dean uh we had Done a few little things together over the years. I she was like, she lived in the first apartment that I lived in in Brooklyn back in 1995. Uh, so I've known her for years, and uh, yeah, I thought maybe she might be interested in doing the tour because it's a little bit different to ask a vocalist to be a side person. You know what I mean? Like, sure. I've worked with plenty of vocalists, and you do the tunes they like to do or their music and that's fine, but when you ask a vocalist to do your music, it's not, you know, without sounding like I'm, you know, being critical of other vocalists, I just think that it's just not something that is done, that I I think it's very rare, so you have to have the right person, you have to have somebody that is willing to uh, spend the time and, you know, maybe drop the ego a little bit and just serve you as opposed to you know because most of the time it's the pianist serving the singer that's just how it goes sure you know um but she was really into it and she did a lot of work and she you know the music isn't easy uh and she she really uh came prepared so um i decided to, after the the tour in japan i decided to try to see if i could work the project more we're working on a recording now um, the recording is basically her singing and I'm playing all the instruments. Uh, some of it's synthesizers, some of it's real instruments. Um, so that, um, is basically tonight's project except with real musicians. So, sure. so it's kind of a mixture of things and, uh, certainly we'll make sure that Jaleel is featured, but, uh, but it's a little bit different because it's, uh, it's lyrics and it's, it's not just pure instrumental and, you know, hopefully people will be into it. We'll what,
2: see. what role, you refer to a kind of singer as Sideman concept, what role does the vocalist play in this project? Well,
0: for? I mean, she's I mean, it's songs with lyrics. Sure. You know? So uh, she doesn't take a lot, really solos so much, but she could. It's just some of the songs I don't feel like need scat solos or anything like that. Um, when we were in Japan, we did more standard material. We mixed it up and we did some jazz standards and she would improvise on that, but she's mostly just singing the songs and and maybe a little bit of improv but uh mostly we leave that up to me or jaleel probably tonight sure (laughs) yeah
2: attracts you to the the songs with lyrics
0: well um a number of things i mean you know if you live in america and you listen to the radio you know you hear music with lyrics there there's very rarely if ever any instrumental music played on mainstream radio i mean if you listen to jazz radio that's a different thing but you know so uh but jazz is primarily thought of as instrumental music, and so, I don't know, I guess some of it was a desire to express myself differently, you know, uh, and maybe there's an interest in, I think some people think that if you start to do, like if a, if a musician, let's say, you know, when you look at Harry Connick or George Benson or something, it's like, oh, well they sold out because they were singing. Or whatever you know but you know when you when you think about how much jazz is struggling these days I mean I think some of it might be this might sound weird but it might be due to like a lack of relevance to today's world and I think that if, if jazz wants to just stay in a box Uh, despite everything else that's going on around it, I think then you can only expect that the audience is going to keep shrinking because it's not developing, you know, and it's not being relevant. I mean, I think that you know fusion in the 70s was not so much musicians trying to sell out, but I think a desire to be relevant, to be to to work with the sounds of, of the day you know and uh so when you look at somebody like Esperanza Spaulding and not that I love everything she does but I think that one of the reasons she's popular is because you know her she has music with lyrics and and people want to hear that you know uh
2: She's a jazz musician who she it would be possible dad. for us to actually find non-jazz fans who've heard her name. Right. Unlike almost anybody in the 360-something episodes of this show, we could go out on the street right now and no one will ever have heard of any of them, but we could right. put a name like Esperanza Spalding because of exactly what you're talking about. Right. Some people would actually have heard of her, Right. which to me is fine. I don't really have any problem with people actually learning right. about this music. It's like right. there's nothing sacred about poverty and being unknown it's not (laughs) right well i
0: think you know and um when you look at some of the things that like nicholas payton who's been saying in his in his blogs i think i think it makes sense you know of course beyond that um another reason that i got into it was uh because my sister uh uh, sent me a bunch of her poetry she's a really good uh, poet um i don't know how active she is now but she has a pretty decent body of work and I always thought that I wanted to set some of that to music. So some of it is, is music uh, and my sister's poetry. And some of it is my own lyrics. Uh, we do one of Debbie's songs, maybe one or two. Uh, but that's kind of the gist of it. And, and I'm I'm personally finding a really great outlet. Again, I don't know what people are going to think of it. Cause, but I feel like I wanted to write things from the heart you know and and sort of express things that i've been experiencing and and try to be artistic like i don't think like to me automatically like writing lyrics doesn't mean like you know pop sellout it just doesn't i don't i don't believe in that i don't think i don't know if i could ever do that especially when you listen to some of today's pop music it's so trite i don't i don't know if i could even Bring myself unless unless I be, wanted to become like a staff songwriter somewhere or really pursue that. But in terms of my own music, I don't I don't really think I don't know if that's me. But I do feel like it's great to express yourself through lyrics, you know. And uh, it's been very satisfying. I think you know I'd, I'd like to keep doing it if possible. One of the ways it came about was because uh, I lived in Winnipeg for two years. Um, pretty much just the school term I was teaching at University of Manitoba. And, uh, you know, it was, again, without trying to disparage the entire city of Winnipeg, because <laughs> uh, there was, you know, I had some good experiences there, but, uh, you know, it's kind of tough. And it's, it's you know, if you've lived in New York for many years, it can be a really serious uh, adjustment. So um, so my wife and, and my, my son was born at that time. Uh, they were... Mostly trying to stay in New York for as long as they could, <laughs> because they uh, we stayed the summers here and any winter break, basically any moment that we could not be in Winnipeg, we were we were here. So, um, so this was like no, uh, fall term of 2010, and uh, so I was in Winnipeg by myself. So without I don't know if you have kids, but I do. Yeah, so. You know, just when when especially when you have a newborn, you know you you have a lot of responsibility. So, I was without wife, without son. I was like I was like, wow, I have tons of free time. <laughs> this is amazing. So so I said, well, I'm going to sit down and write some things and really use the time to my advantage. And plus, it's so cold. I mean, from October, it's freezing. So snow. You you can't go. You can't really go out. So, and then another thing that happened was there's a local venue called Aqua Books. And the guy who runs Aqua Books asked me if I wanted to be songwriter in residence for two months. And I said, well, you know, I don't really think of myself as a songwriter. I'm a composer, but, you know. And he said, well, do you want to do it or not? And I said, I'll do it. So I said, well, this would be even more of a good opportunity. So, um, so what I did is I wrote a whole bunch of songs, and then I also set some of my sister's material to music and I enlisted all the, um, the vocalists in the University of Manitoba jazz program to, because I don't, I'm not really much of a singer, I mean I'm taking some lessons but I'm not really ready to, to do, no one would want to listen to it at this point, so. Uh, but I, I, uh, I got all these singers, I said okay learn one song or two songs each and we'll have a performance so uh it was great it worked out great i was really i just felt like here's a whole new creative outlet for me you know it's it just was like a revelation you know and again i don't know how it's going to be perceived but i almost don't care i mean it's at this point most people unless you know you're recording for a, uh, a label that's that's producing you and really telling you what to do. I mean, I think most people are just doing music now, you know, to express themselves rather than trying to have a hit or, you know, because who's having jazz hits, you know right. what I mean? <laughs> so I don't know. So I, I, I want to keep doing it some in some form, you know. But but it also is, I think, that that might actually be something that could save jazz, you know, is somehow making it relevant you know, I, I think that, I mean, you could debate it, too, because when you look at what's going on in Europe, I mean, the, the European scene is so different from what people perceive jazz to be here. Um, you know, sometimes I feel like you have to be extremely avant-garde, extremely what you might call inaccessible in order to appeal to European audiences, and especially promoters. Most of the promoters in Europe, they want the opposite of Lincoln Center. They want something that they could, whether it's new or not, they want it to be perceived as something new and different and really, like, crazy, you know. Um, so that's something else to think about. Um, but I think just overall, I think that, you know, this could be a way to reinvigorate the interests, you know. I mean, I'm not, you know, trying to say that I'm not a spokesperson for Esperanza Spalding, but I do think that that is a good thing, you know, regardless of whether you think her music is the greatest or whatever. I think that her rise is, hopefully, will help. You know, do, what do you think?
2: Yeah, and, I mean, a lot of people have been talking about that in regards to Robert Glasper recently, too, sure. who, uh, you know, made it on Letterman. And, right. you know, there's, if, his, if his stuff didn't have, uh, you know, lyrics and people out front with voices, there's no, you know... You just don't make it on Letterman, right? It from this community, otherwise, right, right. Um, Yeah, and again, I mean, I'm I'm definitely not a purist, and I'm a huge fan of pop music and hip hop, and so I'm. I guess I tend to the the difficulty I have is more with people's insistence on having to label everything than it is with whatever particular music is being made by a particular person. It's it's kind of that that idea that well, we know you for doing this, and so once you do this. I mean, you're a guy who's talking about writing music with lyrics, and at the same time, you know, you're touring with Jack Dejeanette, I mean, kind of one of the established masters, you know, giants of this music. Right. And I feel like once someone gets in that kind of place where, oh, okay, so that's what you do. Then, once you start doing something else, that seems to be when the firestorm starts. Right, right. As opposed to if, if you, George Colligan, just came out of nowhere writing music with lyrics, people would say, oh, well, that's what he does.
0: Right, right, right. It seems to
2: be more like this kind of jumping genres or, you know, finding other paths to go down that causes people to become uncomfortable or angry, you know, oh, and then the word sellout gets thrown around, which I really dislike.
0: Because I think, you know, I think just the way the music industry is now that, um, I think that there are a lot of people really trying to just make music that they believe in, and they would like to be more popular, but I think that, and I, I do also think that there's music coming out that's really, really terrible, you know? It seems like it's sort of like, the better your music is, the less likely any sort of corporate backing will be interested in it, you know? It seems that way, but... You know, some groups are able to make it just on the underground. You know, and they find their niche. You know, so I think I think jazz is a is a sort of a you know boutique audience. You know, but some people can be somewhat successful. You know, um, but I think just generally creative music. You know, that's what I'm more interested in. Like, there's some things that, like even hip hop. You know. Uh, and, you know, obviously there's a lot of controversy about hip-hop and its validity or whatever, but, like, you know, when when what was called rap music first came out, I thought that, that you know, uh, even though, yes, you could say there was a lot of um, commercial um, viability or whatever, but even so, like, you know, it had some kind of meaning. It was based on something real, whereas now, I mean, I don't know if the term bubblegum hip-hop exists, but I think some of the the things that I've heard you know there's no music happening and there's no lyrics happening it's just I don't I don't see what's interesting about it or what's meaningful about it you know and I just wonder well how did this get out here you know And it's like well obviously somebody paid to have this you know it seems like you can just basically buy your way into the industry like if you start with a lot of money from somewhere that's how you get out there so and But there's so many people without that backing that are making great music, how is it going to be heard? Maybe it'll never be heard, but maybe it'll find its audience somehow.
2: interested uh i don't know if this dovetailed with the the move i was gonna say the exile i apologize winnipeg the move to winnipeg um (laughs) but you also started a blog that i I read every time you post called jazz truth that is very no holds barred and very honest about what you think about the music and the business of the music too not just the music itself um so i guess I'm, i'm interested did that did that also come out of this idea of needing to Needing to kind of make some sound and to express yourself when you were outside of New York City, and and how has it grown for you? How has it progressed?
0: It's interesting. I started that blog. um, You know, it's really ironic about that blog. It's like my wife. uh, Her name is Carrie Pollard. So she's a great uh, pianist. She's also a singer songwriter. And I have to say, I was inspired by her music as well because she just she had never really written lyrics either, and or she maybe a couple times she'd written lyrics. but one day she just said, oh, okay, I'm going to do singer-songwriter stuff, and she took a class. And then all of a sudden she had like a whole body of music, she did a record, and that, that was inspiring to me. Um, and also listening to Debbie Dean's music, you know, her two albums. I, I always liked her music, you know. Um, but my wife was a somewhat uh, known food blogger for many years. She had a, a blog called, um, Sally. what was it called, Sally Vate's New York Food Page. And, um, you know, she, she had been, she loves to go to fancy restaurants. So like, you know, or, or just find like sort of interesting places and she's pretty knowledgeable, you know? So she was, you know, pretty good at, she had a following as this blogger, you know, and, and, uh, but you know, it's hard to get your, you know, keep it going. And she had sort of stopped doing it ever since our son was born. So, um, but I, it was uh, August of 2010, I think it was 2010, yeah, where I, I said, I'm going to start this blog, you know? And I was like, well, how do you do it? I have no idea. And she was like, well, go to Blogger and do do this, blah, 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 blah. And I did, and I did maybe a handful of posts and then somehow it got picked up by um, NPR, it got listed on the NPR of Blog Supreme. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I was getting all these hits, and my wife was really mad. She was like, oh, you've been blogging for a matter of days, and already you're getting, like, hundreds of hits. This isn't right, you know. So I just figured, well, I should try to keep it going. And it's difficult because, obviously, you don't... I mean, I haven't really figured out how to make any money from it. Um, but I enjoy doing it, and I feel like it... Um, it I mean, it's... Um, it's sort of a way to express yourself and a way to get your voice—you know—people know what you're thinking about. And, do
2: you and, feel though that you're at a place in your career where you're kind of secure enough? That, I mean, I mean literally like secure enough job-wise that you can be honest about how you feel about things without <laughs> worrying about?
0: That's a good question. Most of the time, I do. There are times when I think about posting something and then my wife will say, "You shouldn't, you shouldn't do that," or whatever. I mean. And and you know once you enter the the you know the world of the internet and 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 then the fact that people can respond and you, you're not going to please everybody you know a lot of you're gonna you're gonna piss people off for sure it just it's just the way it is you know you could think that you're posting something that everyone agrees on you're going to have dissent so like for example this uh, this whole brouhaha about Nicholas Payton that I had 137 comments and it just my whole page was like hijacked <laughs> by you know a bunch of people going back and forth about this and, and that was great to have the traffic but then after that you know then when you post something mundane then no one comments you're kind of like uh oh like maybe I should keep yeah, like some people think you should be controversial. Right.
2: You, you know? can see why talk radio became what it is because the only way to keep people interested is to constantly being pushing their buttons. Right. Which may not always be what you want to do, but right. you feel almost like you're compelled to do it. So.
0: Right. Well, I mean, I do like to speak my mind, and but I, I feel like I want to do it in a mature way, and if someone can prove me wrong, if someone wants to present another argument, I'm willing to listen to it. As long as long, I basically say, look, you can post, you can comment. You can disagree with me as long as you don't call me names, which surprisingly happens pretty quickly. Like, I'm just like, wow, like, <laughs> you don't even know me and you're calling me these names. Like, what, why would you do that? Like, I mean, you know, I might post something about, like, oh, you know, it's hard to get gigs or whatever, and somebody would post, like, that's because you're a no talent hack. <laughs> like, you never, I'm, I mean, real, if you've, okay, if you've heard my music and then you call me that, Okay, I mean, but most people that I work with don't think I'm a note. I mean, maybe they don't think I'm the best musician ever, but I'm not a no-talent hack, but some talent hack, whatever, you know. So, uh, but, I mean, secure, I mean, you know, I have a teaching job, so there is some security in that, but uh, I don't think anyone is ever secure enough. I mean, you know... I feel like I can set limits myself, like be within the realm of taste, you know, and I mean, I don't want to be known as like a super uh, controversial person. I mean, you know, like Nicholas Payton, is his blog has been pretty controversial. Like it's, he's definitely going out there. I think may, in some ways, I think maybe it's conscious, like he's trying to get attention, you know. You could make the case that you, like, how do you, how do you break through in today's world? You know what I mean? There's so many, uh, distractions. There's so, there's, there's so much oversaturation. Like, how do you break through? Like, like, for example, uh, and obviously I don't think any jazz musician would ever do this, but like, you know, when you hear about people that have a sex tape, you know what I mean? All of a sudden they're in the news, you know? And like that, is that what you have to do to get like, you have to just have the most ridiculous thing happen to you or do the most ridiculous thing just to get known? You know, I don't know. So that's one of the problems with jazz is that, you know, a lot of jazz musicians, I mean, contrary to history, obviously we had some pretty... Uh,
2: we had colorful characters Colorful in characters, yeah. <laughs> sure,
0: sure. But nowadays it seems like most jazz musicians are pretty straight-laced.
2: So... Uh, so basically your message is bring back the heroin. That's the George <laughs> yeah. that's the George Culligan, well, how to save jazz plan. Well, <laughs> bring back the heroin. I mean,
0: you know, it could be argued that's that's why some people um, get the attention. You know, sort of like it's it, sometimes it's more than just the music. In fact, I'd say a lot of times it's more than just the music. And I feel like, I mean, this brings it back to my blog. It's like I want it to be about the music. Like why would you make music and then have people judge you on how you look? Right or, or what you say or what you do, like I feel like this music is is meant to be listened to, and I feel like so many let me give you an example years ago um I played at the um it's funny Clarence was there too I played at the uh this uh, record label event. I won't say what label I think they're they're done now, but like they had this big jazz um uh, you know, uh, roster, and and it was held at this, uh, like a townhouse down in the village, and like there were a bunch of musicians there, and a bunch of industry people, and uh, a bunch of really great groups, I was there with Gary Bartz, and uh, you know, I just remember how like all these groups played, and how no one was listening, I was like, these are industry people, these, this is like the people that are making this happen. And no one would list, No one was listening to the groups. Everyone was schmoozing. Everyone was milling around and drinking. And, and I mean, you know, I think having a party is fine. But these were like the top groups in, or some of the top groups in jazz. Some of the greatest musicians that there are. And I just felt like it wasn't s- sort of like people were like half paying attention. Like people, literally no one was paying attention to the music. It seemed that way. And I just felt like what a sh- tragedy, you know, that even people in the industry don't want to listen to this music you know. So I feel like this music is meant to be listened to and I feel like you know a lot of the people that write about this music, I question whether they actually listen to it. you know I mean, somebody told me that a lot of the reviews that get written, um, you know that people don't listen to it. They, they read the, the jacket and then they write a review and that's a shame. Because when you think about how much we struggle and how much time and energy we musicians put into, you know, deciding what chord goes here, you know, uh, what what rhythm should I use for this, you know, how should we record this, you know what I mean? And, and, and then mixing, mastering, hiring the music. I mean, and then you think beyond that, like, how, how much time it took for me to get to where I am musically, you know, from... The first record I heard to listening to, so, to walking to the library, signing out recordings, to like saving up my money for records, you know, spending money on transcribing, you know. I, I question whether some of these writers have ever tried to transcribe. I mean, e- what, even if you really have good ears, it still takes time. It's like transcribing a Freddie Hubbard solo, you know what I mean? To learn, you know, to apprentice. All the hours that I've like gone to jam sessions when I couldn't play tried to and just sat there, and waited to get my chance to sit in. You know, so you think about the years, and, and not just me because I'm 42, but somebody who's 62 or 82. Like how how many how much actual time it took for them honestly to like get to that level of creative, and then somebody who's gonna just say, ah, oh, well that's just some straight. You know what I mean? Like people, the way people just sort of callously. You know, uh,
2: dismiss. Yeah,
0: uh, kind of yeah. like, oh, well, that's that's just this, you know, without really saying, hey, let's let's check this out for a minute. This th- a lot of work went into this, not just the what you see at that moment, but, you know, it took years to get to this point. You know, that's why, you know, like Miles Davis said uh, to somebody who said, I can't understand your music. You know, I I went and heard your concert and I can't understand it. And he said, well, it took me 30, 40 years of practice and study and and devotion to, to get my music to this point. Why would you expect to understand it in just one sitting? And I think, I mean, now you could argue that, well, people just want to be entertained, and that's fine, but, you know, I think that great art has to be really examined rather than just expect... You know, I mean, I'm into a lot of different things. I'm into like the silliest, you know, stupidest movies that there are. But I, I like, you know, or just any kind of pop art. I mean, I can get into it. But I also like things that make you think, that that move you in a deeper way. You know, that take just a little bit more effort. You know, and I think jazz, jazz needs to be listened to. And I think, you know, the problem is people don't want to actually sit and listen. To. I mean. There are people who do, but, but I think that... Um
2: but let me ask you this question in, in a follow-up to that, which Please. is one of the difficulties I've always had... Like, on this show, whenever anyone uses a term that I don't think the general listener will understand, uh, I always ask them to define it, for example. One of the reasons that I do that is because I have always thought one of the difficulties with jazz is that we make the music seem very inaccessible. People, you know, my friends... I'm the same age as you. My friends know what I do, and most of them are not jazz fans. Almost none of them are jazz fans. And they always say, when I say, oh, I'm going to interview so-and-so. And they say, oh, I would listen to your show, but I just I don't understand jazz at all. And sometimes I say to them, well, it is true that there's something to understand, that it can, you can benefit from understanding. But it's also true that a lot of this music can just grab you on the basis of how it makes you feel or sure. how you hear it. sure. So I guess... I guess the question I have is: I agree that there's a lot of depth there that can be explored, but how do we deal with the fact that people think the bar to entry is so high that they they you know they need to have a college degree just to come to the show and understand it? How do we make? How do we encourage people to listen to music that we also make them think they can't comprehend unless they put in a lot of time? It just seems to me like it's a it's a difficult you know almost like a paradox uh, to deal with to bring in listeners. You know, how do we not force? Well, away.
0: well, yeah, I mean, y- exactly. I think that, well, this might be why the music maybe needs to change a little bit. I think it, it needs to go both ways. I think people have to be more open to it, but I think that we also have to make our music more relevant. And, and, and writers have to accept that. I think that... Uh,
2: You mean writers of music or reviewers? Reviewers
0: Reviewers. and people that write about the music, I think that they should be more open to new developments. Um, I mean, for example, I respect the Lincoln Center ideal, but I think that's hurt the music a lot because it's sort of like, here's the history. And it's interesting because, I mean, Wynton Marsalis is, is very much into education, but I think it's such a narrow view... You know, in, in a way, he's very much like, you know, the college professor. And I say that ironically as a college <laughs> professor. But, like, you know, he's sort of like, well, this is, this is, you know, it's like your father or something. Eat your spinach. It's good for you, you know. And in as opposed to, like, trying to figure out a new way to prepare the spinach so that you'll eat it, you know. But just yelling at you, saying, like, eat it. It's good for you, you know. If you don't eat it, I'm going to punish you. Like, I mean – I'm exaggerating, but like it's sort of like that. It's sort of like you need to, like the whole Ken Burns thing was so heavy on, you know, certain part of the tradition, you know, and it just ignored that era, which I think, you know, we can't ignore. I mean, the, the to me the '70s was sort of like, uh, you know, jazz could be popular, could be more relevant, you know, if we if we do these things, you know, but the whole Lincoln Center crowd has dismissed uh, the fusion era as being a fad and just a sellout and, and just not, not worthy. You know, like Miles Davis, that was his worst period, you know? I mean, and maybe they don't like that stuff. It's true, but, you know, that was a good example of a time when the music changed. And then you have, uh, here's something interesting. When you look at uh, Nicholas or... um Christian McBride. Christian McBride had a great fusion band. And I think he stopped doing it. I mean, I haven't talked to him about it, but I think he stopped doing it just because, you know, the venues he was playing in weren't interested in that stuff. And, like, the people that he was... It's funny when you talk about, like, you get known for doing this and then you try to do this and people don't... Like, I I used to sub in that band. And we played at this venue in Maryland that was mostly older folks. And they wanted to hear... Straight ahead, and we were doing the fusion stuff, and it was weird. I don't think they were that into it, you know. And it's great music,
2: yeah. That band was monstrous. That was, you know, I'm saying so. It's like
0: you have to get it in front of the right people. I feel like you know, some of the problem with jazz is that there's not like a great organization, it's sort of like all these things. It's like, I mean, I don't know what it was like back in you know, in the day, but I think that, I mean, for example. You know, when you think about the '30s and early '40s, when all these big bands were touring, uh, or the '20s, like there was, I think maybe more of a connection. You know, it's like you have a band; the band gets uh, an agent or a manager or both, and uh, the agent book uh, has you know they book all these gigs, and it's all connected. Like you can you could tour all around the country, and then you could go to Europe and tour there, and it was all connected. And, and you
2: play 300 nights a year. Right. And, but right.
0: it was sort of like an easy way to, I mean, even it seems like, like with rock bands, I think it's just more like, okay, you're a successful rock band. Here's somebody that's going to work with you. With jazz, it's, it's just hard to even get a manager because you're like, well, I need a manager. Well, what do you have to manage? Nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you. that's why people just do it themselves because, uh you know, there's there's not enough money to be made. So I mean, a manager wants to make, and, and then the agent they need to know that they're going to make money if they're going to do work for you. So, and there's no, there's just no circuit, you know. There's no connection. So, I think that's the problem. I forget what I was talking about. <laughs> the, the, but, that was but, interesting in of but, but, but I think that um, it's just not very well organized, you know. And the the labels have no connection with booking. I mean, here's here's an example. Uh, we were with uh, Lonnie Plaxico, we were about to go to Europe to do a three-week tour. He had just been signed to Blue Note. We happened to run into Bruce Lundvall, and I don't care if Bruce Lundvall listens to this. <laughs> we <laughs> he, should uh,
2: mention Bruce Lundvall is the head of Blue Note Records. Right, Right,
0: right. He, he he's still the head of Blue Note Records, and, and he happened to be in the airport checking in. At, we were on Lufthansa. He was on Air France or something. I said, oh, there's Bruce Lundvall. We should go talk to him. So we talked to him and he said, hey, Bruce. He said, oh, hey, how are you doing? He said, uh, we're, going, we're going on a three-week tour with Lonnie Plaxico. He was like, oh, really? Oh, I have a good time. Like, like he didn't know about it. And I was like, how does the head of the label have no idea that one of his artists is going on a three-week tour of Europe? Is it really that in- inconsequential? i thought that was weird i mean that and again not every artist receives the same support maybe if diane reeves had been going he would know about it but i just thought that was odd and and that's where i see the disconnect like shouldn't the label have been connected with the tour you know what i mean like to make it a success it seems like that really doesn't exist it's it's like everything is just piecing everything together
2: ask you in terms of your own career you uh, you mentioned uh being in in winnipeg and now you're in portland and you've chosen to teach and yet at the same time as we mentioned i mean you're playing with some of the heaviest of the heavies how have you been able to kind of structure this life so that you can i mean you still have a real career as a touring musician and yet you're also still holding down this gig and yeah, you're on the other side of the country i mean it seems it's, challenging it's,
0: it is very challenging um We'll see how long it lasts on on <laughs> on any end, you know. Uh, but I still love to play, and I, and I think one of the reasons they hired me at Portland State is because I I do still I am still active, and I think they want that. I think most schools want you to, within limits. I mean, um, in the fall, Jack Dejanet has a lot of work, so we had to have a meeting and talk about strategies to make it so that. My absence is not gonna, you know, be overwhelming for sure, whoever is still there. The yeah, right, yeah. yeah, So, um, you know, I think that's gonna be cool. Um, I, you know, um, I'm hoping in some ways that having a teaching job, and I love to teach. You know, I think I'm better at it than I was. Certainly, teaching for two years in Winnipeg helped my teaching, and. Some of the teaching I've done this year has really I'm, I'm developing, you know. Uh, but having it, some kind of a steady income allows you to be more selective. You know, I don't have to take every gig, certainly. Um, and I want to do more of my own stuff. That's been my dream for years is to, to do more of my own gigs. But it's tough. Like, if you don't have the backing um, and and a ton of money, you know, it's very hard to do it yourself. Um, but uh i you know i'm hanging in there and uh you know i mean things change you know i'm 42 and i'm definitely feeling older than when i was 32 when i was 22 but um you know i still have a lot of musical goals and i still like to work hard and um I don't know. You know, it's funny. I was in the airport again and I ran into John Hendricks and we had worked together with Gary Barthes on a recording and I just said hello. And I don't know. He started saying, uh, he's like, he's like, man, it takes a lifetime to learn this music. And like, he was, I don't know, probably 80 at the time. And it was just interesting to hear him say that. Like, you know, I don't, I don't ever want to get to a point where I just feel like I'm finished. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that maybe at some point I might, who knows what's going to happen to the world, you know, but, I do, f- I, I love to make music. I love to play music. Um, and, uh, I like to teach. And I, I don't, I don't want to just rest comfortably, you know, and maybe a vacation now and then, <laughs> you know, a couple of days. I mean, hey, I'd like to get a good night's sleep. Last night I got a good night's sleep because my son never sleeps. So <laughs> that's, I mean, and I love my son, but, uh, you know, I haven't gotten too many good night sleeps in uh, over two years. So you know, you know how it is. Yeah, it's just—I mean, he just—he'll just wake up in the middle of the night and want to come in our bed, and it's just. Yeah, I have, you know, I have
2: two sons, and I've done a lot of. Yeah, a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, and so blogging is a creative outlet. Composing is a creative outlet. I mean, I, I love to compose. I, I love to play i love to improvise at the piano um i'd love to do a classical piano recital someday i, I mean I, maybe i sort of set too many goals like i'm always kind of trying like i want to be a better bass player you know want to play more drums you know um so i'm always kind of trying to you know just keep have a lot of a lot of ideas you know that's just that's just how i am so so despite any kind of like notoriety or financial success, I'm I'm determined to keep hanging in there. And I think that sets a good example too, because you want your students to do it for the right reasons. Like if they think they're gonna be rich playing music, it's it's they're gonna be disappointed probably. You know? But if you say, look, you know, this is something that you can spend your life doing that's worthwhile and will will reward you in other ways besides money you know, I mean, hey, get a day job and and still do your music, even if you do it as a hobby. But as long as you do it for the right reasons, and if you feel like, okay, well, I have to work during the day, but but to support my family or whatever, but I can still play on the weekends and I can play a few nights a week or whatever. You know, that's I think that's as good as, you know, um, that might be better than you know thinking, well, I'm going to be a famous musician and I'm going to get a bunch of, I'm going to play every night and I'm going to tour. And when it doesn't happen, then it's like, well, now what do you do? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or if you, or if they never get to be good enough, you know, or if they never move to New York, whatever it's, it's, it's kind of deep as a, as a teacher, you know, like, cause I'm around students that um, I think expect or imagine that they're going to be professional musicians. I don't know. I feel like I want to be honest with them and say, look, you know, it's tough. But, you know, a life in music on any level can be rewarding, you know. I have a friend out in Portland. He has a day job, but he, you know, spends, you know, some of the money he makes on promoting his band, you know. And he does gigs, and he's happy doing that. And I I think that's as good as, you know, I mean, now you have to have another skill, I guess, right. you know. <laughs> so I don't, I don't fault anybody that does that. I don't think that's selling out. I think that's just, hey, you don't want to you know, live in a studio apartment your whole life and eat ramen noodles, you know, especially when you start having kids, then it's a whole, as you know, it's a whole different thing when you have kids, because you can't, you can't live like a, a college teenager, you know what I mean, when you have kids, you just can't, it can't be done, you know, I mean, I suppose you could, but it's, you know, it's not, I don't think it's fair to, you know, like, I mean, let's just say that I decided not to teach and just, I'm saying, okay, I'm not going to teach because I don't want to teach. And I said, and I'm only going to do the gigs I want to do. You know, that's not fair. That's not fair to him. I mean, I can't, I can't survive that way at this, at this juncture. Sure. Maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, maybe in 20 years, you know, but for now, I have to be realistic, you know. Especially in this country, you need health insurance. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, that's, that's the thing. So. So we'll see. I don't know where I'm going to end up, but right now I like Portland. My wife likes Portland. My son likes Portland. And um, and uh, I'm getting to do a lot, and I'm very thankful for that. So That's great. Yeah.
2: My guest is George Colligan. Uh, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, folks Likewise. can check the show notes to this show, and they'll find your website and blog. And uh, really thank you for coming on the show, man. Thank
0: Thanks. you. All right.
1: music from george colligan today's guest on the jazz session produced and hosted by jason crane i'm michael wright the host of bohemia after dark on RobinhoodRadio.com, radio.com serving as this show's guest announcer the show is sponsored by matt rock murat verdi and nicholas payton you know technology is a wonderful thing and if it wasn't for twitter i probably would not be doing this so thank you twitter.com Uh, You can follow Jason at Jason D. Crane. I'm at MikeWright101 for the record. You really do make a difference, so get out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.